the centerpiece of the Christian faith, the centerpiece of the church is God, (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarian. The center of it all for us is God himself. But the one who puts Christ in Christianity, as we call ourselves Christian, the one who puts Christ in Christianity is Jesus. There's something special about Jesus who took on flesh and dwelt among us. Something about Jesus that allows us to understand and experience what God is like. What is the invisible God like? Jesus makes him known. So Jesus is crucial to our lives. Jesus is crucial to our church. Jesus is central to our vision of life in this world. But here's the thing. In, in today's cultural moment, in our TikTok smartphone world, with increased secularization, right, massive shifts on how people learn and take in information, how a person makes sense of the world, it is a fair question to ask, which Jesus are you talking about? And maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago in a church, you could say, yeah, Jesus, and everyone would know what we're talking about. Or you could go out into the streets and say, oh yeah, Jesus, and many people would have an idea who it is that you're talking about. If I were to wander the streets of downtown and go to Sylvester Park, or maybe even if I were to go further over to the west side of the mall and just ask someone, hey, do you believe in Jesus? That person could be thinking of a whole host of options. Which Jesus? I'm going to put the slide up. Which, which Jesus? Right? Are they thinking of eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus? Do we have buddy Jesus? American Jesus? Ninja Jesus? There are cultural expressions of Jesus online, Hispanic Jesus, black Jesus, white American Jesus, Chinese Jesus. Mormons believe in Jesus. Muslims believe in Jesus, some former notion of Jesus. And I would say many even without a religious background. Like some picture comes to mind when the name of Jesus is spoken. Some see Jesus as a healer. Some see Jesus as a teacher. Some see Jesus as a moral example to teach us how to live. Some would say that he is a misunderstood ancient rabbi. Like, Which Jesus am I talking about? Which Jesus are you talking about? Which Jesus do you know? Do you know him? And for some, this may be like, I don't even know we're talking about this. This may seem abstract or uh, maybe some crazy religious mumbo-jumbo. I will say this, that your version of Jesus will radically alter your vision for life. 
the version of Jesus that you come to know and understand will change and impact the vision you have for the way that you live. Your version changes your vision. Which is why, open up your Bibles if you have one tonight, to the book of Colossians. This passage that we're in tonight, we're in this series in the book of Colossians. Really, I'm excited tonight. This, is, this little section is the centerpiece of this letter. A five-verse section, this little poem, this hymn that begins Colossians. It's why this passage spells out a version of Jesus and a vision of life that is distinct, that is compelling, and that is in a world of its own. Uh, Reality Church, there may be a lot of things that will get wrong. Uh, May it not be about Jesus. Why would people follow him? Why, would, why have people died for him? Why would we make such a big deal about this person who lived almost 2,000 years ago? Is he really that big a deal? I want you to hear the words tonight from the scripture. It is a poem. It's a hymn. This is some of the most potent Jesus material that you will find anywhere in the Bible. This is some of the most robust, Christ-exalting writing on earth. These statements tonight are political. They are political. They are subversive. And they're beautiful. And our invitation is that we would actually reorient our lives and our church around this Jesus. Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul, the apostle, again, he's writing to this church in Colossae. He writes and says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Man, those words are beautiful. And they are challenging. This poem, so again, there's debate. Is is Paul pulling in some other ancient writing into this letter? I'm not really going to dive into where this came from. If this is Paul making this up or he's pulling in from some ancient hymns that were in the community. Uh, But it is powerful. It falls really into two major sections with massive implications. Here are the two sections. First part of the poem, first part of the hymn, is that Jesus is over the first creation. And that means something. And also that Jesus is over the new creation. So Jesus is over the first creation. Jesus is over the new creation. Let me unpack that a bit tonight. Jesus is over the first creation. 
So many people, and rightly so, when you're trying to figure out, like, who is this Jesus? What is he like? We, we scour the Gospels, and the Gospels are a great place to learn more about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They, they give us, those, those four books of the New Testament give us wealth of stories and teachings and parables and information about the birth, life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. At Christmas time, we celebrate the Incarnation. The enfleshment of God, that God the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us. That He became a baby in the womb of Mary, His mother. And that is a beautiful story of seeing how Jesus came to earth. And at Easter, we talk about these passages that talk about resurrection, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. He really did live. He was a human being born as a Middle Eastern Jew. He really did live. He really did die. He really did raise to life again the third day. But here's the move that Paul makes that really probably would have been very scandalous to the, his original hearers. He makes the move to talk about Jesus and, and grounds them in an accurate vision of Jesus where he steps even beyond the Gospels and he goes into this macro view of Jesus that long before Bethlehem, and long before the stable, and long before the baby, Jesus tells us, or Paul tells us, that Jesus of Nazareth actually played a role in creation. And he uses these two main titles. First title he talks about is that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. We're going to do a little Old Testament as you bounce around. Because Paul, he's grabbing, he's grabbing culturally from some Roman ideas, politically. And he's also grabbing from some Old Testament ideas. And he's bringing them together. But Old Testament, Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So after God made everything that was to be made, he wasn't done yet. He'd made all creation, birds and sea creatures and animals and cows and beasts and creeping things. And then he makes humanity, male and female, he makes them. And there's this unique phrase here in verse 26. A designation for humanity, male and female, and the designation is that they are made in God's image. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. There's something unique and distinct about humanity that was unlike the cows and unlike the creeping things and unlike the beasts of the field. The humanity is made in the image of God. And sure, we may share some of these characteristics and qualities of God, but ultimately as image bearers, Humanity was made to represent God, to show what God was like, who he is, and what he is like. We became an extension of his rule. 
to express his character and his likeness to, to, to the visible world to experience what God is like. Maybe you could say it this way, that humanity was designed to be the self-expression of God within the world. That's what we were made for. And guess what we did with our image bearing? Yeah. In a sense, threw it away, spoiled it, ruined it through sin. We've done a horrible job. Humanity, as image bearers, rebelled, worshipped ourselves, and we have failed to image God properly. So now back to Colossians. Where Adam failed, where Eve failed, where Israel in her story failed, and not just to throw it back on them, we have failed, I have failed. And where we all corporately as humanity have failed to be the image of God, Paul tells us that Jesus has stepped in as the hero. That he is the image of the invisible God. The Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, but in Jesus, creation sees God. Because of our failure, because of our sin, We have had this broken relationship with God, but in Jesus, through Jesus, all of creation, all creatures, and all humanity can see and know and experience God. Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, is God's true representative on earth. And he's picked up the broken pieces of where we have failed. Jesus is God's true representative on earth. Scott McKnight, commentator, scholar, says, again, I'll give this quote. The the word image is the word icon. You'll see it show up in the quote. He says, to be sure, in Paul, humans, all humans are made in God's icon. But it is particularly King Jesus as Israel and Israel's Messiah who is the true icon image. Inasmuch as the icon of Genesis 1, 26 and 27 was created to sub-rule on behalf of God, and inasmuch as Adam and Eve forfeited that task, and inasmuch as God wanted to rule Israel, but Israel wanted a human king, God did send his son as the true icon to rule over all creation. This God, man, king, or Lord rules and reveals God. He rules and reveals God. As the image of the invisible God, he allows us to fully understand all of creation to know and experience what God is like. The next phrase that Paul uses, not only is he the image of the invisible God, but he's also the firstborn of all creation. And that term firstborn is a little tricky because it sounds like, wow, was Jesus then created? Was he the first one who was born? That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses will say. Some of the cults will say that Jesus isn't really God. He's the one that God made first. He's the firstborn. But again, if you go back and look through the scriptures, that term firstborn is used several times in places where it doesn't mean firstborn. Firstborn does not always mean the first one born. A few examples. I'll just, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. 
But there are a few examples in the Old Testament where this term is used not to refer to the literal firstborn person. Exodus 4.22, it says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. If you know the history of Israel, Israel was not the firstborn in his family, but was given a special position of prominence, authority. Psalm 89.27, speaking of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. If you know David's story, David wasn't the firstborn in his family. In fact, he is, yeah, he's young. He wasn't even around when they were trying to pick the king but he was given a position of authority and prominence and power. Genesis 48, 14, there's this blessing ceremony between um, Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and Joseph tries to correct his father, saying, no, 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 bless, he's older. And he's like, no, that's not what's going to happen here. And so there's the sense in which the firstborn isn't always the first one born And I talk through that and take the time to talk through that tonight just to remind you that when Paul is using this idea, calling Jesus the firstborn of creation, it's not as though he's the first created being of the Father. He is saying that Jesus holds a very unique, distinct, authoritative place over creation. And then he goes on to explain why, right? Verse 16 He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of overall creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you were wondering why Jesus calls him the firstborn of creation, Paul just says, let me just tell you here, Jesus himself has a special place of power because Jesus is creator God. He takes everything that they would have known about Israel's one true God. And now Paul says, that one true God that you know and worship, I'm applying that to Jesus. He's reinterpreting the Hebrew story and reimagining the Hebrew God and saying that by him, Jesus, all things were created. Everything was created by Jesus. Everything was created for Jesus. He doesn't leave any stone unturned. He doesn't allow for any other conclusion other than the fact that Jesus is God. This whole story itself begins and hinges on this idea that in the beginning, when we read the Genesis story and it says that God created the heavens and the earth, that this Jesus was there. And this Jesus made you. And this Jesus made me. And this Jesus is the one who holds a special place of power and authority over the first creation. Everything, everything, all things in heaven, all things on earth, all things visible, all things invisible. He goes on, thrones, dominions, principalities, and power. No matter where you go and look on planet earth, No matter where you go in the heavens, in the heavenly realm, visible or invisible, structures, peoples, titles, every single thing owes its existence to Jesus. Even power structures, Paul covers all of his bases. 
What's the implication? Is that Jesus, as creator God, has all authority and rights over everything that he has made. And that includes this world, that includes this country, that includes me, that includes you. Jesus Christ is Lord over the first creation. Way before the Gospels, way before Mary and Joseph, way before that Bethlehem manger, Jesus is creator God. Have you ever made anything? Come on. Any, anyone ever made anything? Let me t- tell me, what's, what's the favorite thing that you've made? My children. <laughs> 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 All right. Thanks, Jeff. Your children. Anybody else? What else is something that you made? A nice meal. A nice meal? Some benches and uh, chairs. Okay. Some woodworking, some benches, some chairs. Anybody else? Make stuff? Something? What's that? A book? Okay. Music? Art? Okay. Make someone smile. All right. You made some shelves to organize your garage. I've made a few things. I remember there was a, a season of my life in my early parenting where we went through a paper airplane phase. And my kids were obsessed, at least one of my kids was obsessed with paper airplanes. We had a book about how to make different paper airplanes. I would spend like hour after hour making paper airplanes. And my son was like, Daddy, make those airplanes. We make things. Food. Shelves. Books. Art. Music. Paper airplanes. Kids. After you are done making whatever you made, have you ever had what you made say, I don't like the way you do things? Who are you? (laughs) Uh, True. (laughs) Who are you to say that I look like this? I could do a better job than you. I don't even believe you exist. Maybe you can see what I'm getting at. This authority question is real. Who has the right to do what he or she wants in this world? Who has the right to make things the way they are? Who has authority to call the shots? The one who creates has authority. Paul says, this Jesus, this is not just some random baby. This is not just some random miracle worker. This is not just some misunderstood rabbi. This Jesus is the Lord of the first creation. He's creator God. Which holds some bearing over you and me. That's half the poem. Second half. Not only is he creator God, but he's also the Lord of the new creation. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood 
this cross. So in the first creation, Paul uses words like he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. But now having made all things in the first place, through him, in him, for him, Paul says that now Jesus also has a new creation project. He was there in the first creation project, but now he has a new creation project, and he has a few lines and phrases that he throws and applies to Jesus. He says, first of all, that Jesus is the head of the church. And just as Jesus was faithful to his first creation to make all things, to sustain all things, to, as Hebrews tells us, to hold the universe together by the word of his power, also, now Jesus is faithful in his project of new creation. If you want a different word, his project of redemption, his project of salvation, because his first creation project has experienced profound sin, profound rebellion, profound brokenness, and death. But Jesus hasn't left it there. And he has continued his next project of new creation. And, and, and here, according to Paul, here's where the laboratory of new creation is breaking out. Yes, I think it was Tom said, Jesus is king, but you look outside and you're like, I'm not sure he really is. Because this world, though he is king, has not fully experienced the fullness of his reign. But guess who has? Guess, guess where the new creation laboratory starts? The church. This is where new creation breaks out first in his church, among his people. And Jesus has created this crazy organism called the church, a collection of sinful people, redeemed people from every tongue and tribe and nation, wherein God has chosen to show the fullness of his love and grace. And Jesus is the head of his church. He uses the analogy of a body. He says that Jesus is the head of the body that Jesus is in the ultimate position of authority. And in his position as head, he is what some scholars have called the causative source of the church's growth. This is where new creation begins. This is what's breaking out among his people throughout the world who come to place their faith in him. But Jesus is the head of his body. Jesus is also, next phrase, the beginning He's the beginning. It's, it's like it's Genesis language. Just like in the beginning, new, in the beginning creation it happened. Creation broke out. And now in Jesus, he's the beginning of this new thing that's happening. He's the genesis of the new creation because the third phrase, he is the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn in resurrection life. Again, this is not about birth order, like he's the first person born. This is not about birthing. This is talking about resurrection life. He's the firstborn from the dead. He experiences a unique privileged status in resurrection. The one who has special authority and power over death itself, namely permanent resurrection. And 
and he is the one who has gone first through life, death, and resurrection, that we then too would follow in his footsteps by faith, that we would experience resurrection from the dead as well. Paul goes on. This is what creation, now new creation, is all about. That Jesus is the great reconciler. Taking people who have no business being together and bringing them back together again. He is the great reconciler between God and humanity. And he's brought us back together. He has made peace where there has been enmity and war and strife by the blood of his cross, so that he would reconcile all things, all things in heaven, all things on earth. That Jesus, Paul says, is the one who's putting heaven and earth back together again. Jesus is the one bringing God and humanity back together again. That Jesus is the one bringing us back together again. Because there are people that we hate and there are groups that we say are other. And there are tribes that we say, not them. There are people that we look down our noses to. There are those who have hurt us in real and devastating ways. And Jesus says, my cross is enough. My body is enough. My sacrifice is enough but to make peace by the blood of the cross. And I'm going to bring it all together again. He's over the first creation. He's over the new creation. So what? Paul answers it with one word. Verse 18. Preeminence. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. Preeminent. Supremacy. That he would be the preeminent one. And by implication then, here's what Jesus is looking for. He's looking to be first place. Not just first on your list, but in all of your list. Jesus as over all things, but also Jesus in all things. Not just the first one that you talk to in the day to have quiet time in the morning, but he wants to be involved. Preeminence involves his engagement all throughout your day. Not just first conversation, but in all your conversations. Yes, he's over all your life, but he also wants to be in every piece of your life. He wants to be over your day as Lord, but he wants to be in your day. He wants to be the one over your schedule, but he wants to show up in your schedule. Over your decisions, over your work, over your parenting, over your school, over your play, but in your parenting, and in your play, and in your work as well. Paul is painting this picture of Jesus-centered preeminence. The Lord of the first creation, the Lord of the new creation, the beginning of life, the saving of life, all of life, that Jesus Christ 
would be Lord. Because he's God's representative to creation. Because he made everything. Because he's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. His desire is intimate union with his people, with you and with me. And that every single facet and feature of your life would somehow engage with him. The Christ hymn from Philippians 2 paints this in a different way. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus who lived and died and rose again. This is the Jesus that we worship and serve. Not just a brave man or a well-meaning man or a misunderstood teacher or a person co-opted by a particular political party or country or tribe or tongue. But this is the creator, king, head of the body, preeminent over everything that you can see and things you can't see. All of that packed into the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what? It's one thing then to know about Jesus. It's another thing to obey Jesus. And all sorts of questions begin to pop here as we end today. Maybe a few questions to consider. Like if Jesus really is the Lord of creation, first creation and new creation, like what rivals need to be recognized and renounced? If he really is to be preeminent over everything, are there rivals to the throne in our community? in your heart. Another question to ask. What dualism needs to be reconnected? It's so easy for us to split our lives into buckets. Sacred buckets, secular buckets. right? God bucket, real life bucket. Sunday stuff and Monday through Saturday stuff. But if Colossians is true, if this is true, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then we're actually invited to bring all the buckets into one, all the worlds into one. There's actually nothing in your life that's in a different bucket than the Jesus is Lord bucket. All of your life counts. All of your life matters. All of everything matters. Visible things matter, invisible things matter. All of who you are matters. All of your schedule matters. All of your life matters. All, there is nothing outside of his scope. One author, Walter Brueggemann, says, the key pathology of our time which seduces us all is the reduction of the imagination so that we are too numbed, too satiated, and too co-opted to do serious imaginative work. We just, we just check out, and we're numbed. I just like, let me watch something else. 
and our imagination suffer from. Like this stuff is actually spectacular. The scope of the rule and reign of Jesus in your life should breed some imaginative creativity. What would it mean if our lives got put back together again? And all of our life counts in the rule and reign of King Jesus. Third question. What rebellion needs to be repented? Like, like where have we intentionally just disregarded Jesus? And so, like, who are you? What lets you set the rules? I don't like that. I'm doing my own thing. Like, where have we just said, I'm doing my own thing? C.S. Lewis says, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Where has there been rebellion? Are we just like, God, I'm going to do my own thing. Like, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then we should be quick to name those places. Forgive me, Jesus. And return back to his loving rule. Last question. What of Jesus' presence needs to be recognized? So earlier this summer, I downloaded the whole Chronicles of Narnia on audiobook. It was awesome. It came with one credit on Audible, all seven books. So I've been having kind of a Narnian summer. And it's been so long since I've read, like I read them as a kid. I think I read them maybe, maybe in college, but it's been a long time since I've read them. So it was, for a few of those books, it was like reading them again for the first time. One of those books, it's called A Horse and His Boy. I was really moved at the end of it when one of the characters, Shasta, at the end of his journey, he begins to connect some of the dots of his life. I'm going to read a fairly long section from the end of this book. So he's, he's come, this guy Shasta's come to the end of a very grueling journey, and he has a very surprised companion as he's walking along the way. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who are you, he said, barely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are you, are you a giant, asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, You're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban. 
and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert and how he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you, there were, uh, there were at least two lions the first night. And there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Then it was you who wounded Erebus? It was I. But what for? Child, said the voice, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell you no one any story but his own. I tell no one any story but his own. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low, so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around, all around you, as if the leaves rustled with it. He goes through the story and he calls himself, I am the most unlucky of people. I'm the unluckiest person in the whole world because he thought he was alone and he thought his circumstances didn't make sense. And in this encounter, he realizes that actually, again, Aslan is the Christ figure in the story. He was there all along. And as he retells the story, it's him, in a sense, relearning his entire life. I was there, I was there, I was there, I was there. You're not the most unlucky of persons. You just didn't know my presence. You didn't recognize me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, he is the one who demands allegiance. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, he is the one. Because of who he is, he's the one who calls for obedience. But he's also the one who invites you to recognize his presence in places that you haven't seen or known. As the Lord of the first creation and the Lord of the new creation, he has been at work in your life in so many ways. You just hadn't seen it yet. And all the places where you've experienced loss and heartache and difficulty and challenges, he's been with you. He's that big. He is bigger, greater, gooder than you think. And a part of the process of discovering that Jesus Christ is Lord is the invitation to reimagine our lives and stories with a greater awareness of his presence. I tell you, this summer for me, I have been able to see his hand in places where I thought I was the most unlucky of persons. 
and he's been there all along. So may rivals be renounced and may our dualism get reconnected for whole lives. May rebellions be repented of. And may you recognize the presence of Jesus in places maybe that you haven't seen. Because Jesus, the Messiah, is Lord. And Jesus, the Messiah, is with you. He's with us over the first creation, over new creation, and in tonight, in this moment. He's here. Inviting us closer. Let's pray. King Jesus, all things made by you, all things made for you, all things made to you. Maker of all things in the first place, the great Redeemer of humanity and creation after the fall. Making peace by the blood of your cross. Lord, I think if we're honest, there are many ways in which we are blind to who you are. We ask for vision to see, to know you, to respond to you, to put things in place where they need to be, to be aligned with you, Jesus. But may we not settle for a version of who you are that is less than your greatness, your authority, your supremacy, your preeminence tonight in our lives. May we be quick to throw off sin and confession and repentance. It pales in comparison, Jesus, to who you are. And in those places where we have been thinking that you've been absent, may we see and discover your presence, your purpose, your redemptive work, your reconciling abilities that are unmatched. God, I pray for those who may be in the room tonight who have not yet come to believe and trust in you by faith. That may even tonight be a night that they would say yes to you and receive you and follow you and offer all to you. That's what you ask. Because, Lord, our lives are better off in your hands. So forgive us, restore us, redeem us, but help reconcile us. You are the great reconciler. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.